0: Good Lord's Day to you all. I hope everybody's doing well. Uh, Today we are going to talk about Jonah. So turn with me to the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is a minor prophet, which means he is left of Matthew. uh, Just a few pages. He is minor not because he's not major. He's just minor because the book is small. That's why they call him a minor prophet. So when you hit Micah, you'll just go just a bit more to the left. It's just a little book, four chapters. Four chapters. Or do the ever uh, faithful table of contents? God, you are our Creator, and we are the created, and we are grateful for that. God, as that song, uh, just as we just sung that song to you, God, we are grateful for your saving us from death, bringing us to life. God, I pray for this morning that uh, we would honor you with our hearts and our minds and our thoughts. As we're hearing the word of God preached this morning, Lord, may we be centered on you, focused on how we serve you and glorify you and enjoy you. That's what we're here to do. That's what we do church for, God. So we pray that we would do that this morning. I pray, God, that you would uh, just open our ears and our minds and our hearts to the truth this morning. And as it penetrates us, God, the spirit would move within us, convict us where needed, move us where needed, be sensitive where needed. And God, so we love you. We are grateful that we get to pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I've been teaching 180 for the past number of weeks, and we have been uh, working through the book of Jonah. So you guys get a little tidbit of that. Uh, We're going to preach just one passage in Jonah, uh, and I'm excited to do it because I think it's a, I think it's a great message. Um, Hopefully you find it to be the same. And so let me try to give you guys a bit of background leading you up to chapter 3, is where we're going to land today. But let me try to give you a little bit of background leading you up to that particular point. Jonah, as an entire book, the point of the entire book of Jonah is that God's compassion leads him to his grace. So his compassion motivates God's grace. And we find this running throughout the entire story. And then Jonah is actually called at the beginning of the story by God to go preach repentance to the ever evil Ninevites. Does anybody know why, off the top of your head, why these people were so utterly evil and why Jonah ran so far away? A little Bible knowledge, anybody have any idea? What's that? Persecuted his people. And that would again that language, that term persecuted would need to be unpacked and I would unpack it by saying murdering. So the Ninevites were murdering Israelites and so when God says, "Hey Jonah, go off to Nineveh, preach repentance to him. God, Jonah's obvious response would be like your response being asked to go preach the gospel to the Taliban. <laughs> but even worse because what, how, how we've been in the war with those guys for a decade, maybe a bit longer than that. We're talking about decade after decade after decade here with these particular people. So there was a lot of history. He was being asked to go preach repentance to these people, and as I said, this would be similar to you and I walking down Taliban Drive preaching the gospel. Uh, It wouldn't go over so well, so he was extremely, I would assume, scared to do it, but more so, he was angry. He was angry at the fact that God would ask him to do that, and his first response is to run. And Jonah runs and runs and runs, and Jonah doesn't only run, but Jonah runs 2,500 miles in exactly on a compass, the opposite direction of where he was supposed to go making it very clear that he was not very happy about uh, the, the commands of God. So this would be similar to you and I jumping on a plane going uh, directly to New York when we were called directly to Hawaii. Okay, so... Um, the problem with that is it took Jonah about a year. This wasn't like he jumped on a plane and went there or a train or a horse. It took him a- about a year to get to where he was going. So he ran for an entire year. I mean, it wasn't like a couple of days, and then he came to his senses and came back. It took him a year to get to chapter 3. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the timeline, if you will, of this whole thing. And then, of course, we find the uh, famous verse about Jonah being swallowed by the whale and then being vomited, vomited back out, the language says in the text back onto the shore of Palestine. And so what we learn here, so look with me actually, look with me uh, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1. Just again, a little background here. Jonah is going to teach us that being obedient to God's call the first time doesn't always happen. Okay, God calls him to do something and God's call to serve him, but he doesn't actually do it the first time. Okay, so let's look at verses 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, which would have been unbelievably expensive, and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This text explains to us This particular text explains to us that we're supposed to follow God's lead in compassion and have compassion on our enemy, and Jonah goes the opposite direction. So a bit of contemporary relevance here for you. It would be similar to you guys running into, on a slightly lower level, running into the guy at work that doesn't have a very good filter. He's annoying, kind of rubs you a little bit wrong, doesn't know when to stop talking, talks about inappropriate things in front of you. It's just very difficult to be around, and he kind of just rubs you the wrong way. But God keeps bringing this guy back into your life over and over, day after day, and he keeps running into you, and you keep running into him. And you might say to me, wait a minute. This is not an exact parallel here because we're talking about people that murder and now you're talking about Sal who rubs me the wrong way when I'm having a cup of coffee at work. It's our response that's the important part and how we identify those people as our enemy. So I mean, you know, Sal's not all that bad. He just rubs me the wrong way. He's not murdered anybody. He just kind of talks a little bit differently than I do. I don't exactly want to have these conversations with him. And then the thing may escalate to the point where you see Sal and you suddenly bop into the into the bathroom because you don't want to talk to him. You see him over here and you just kind of avoid looking at him so that he doesn't see you. And the point here is that our treatment of these kinds of people make them indeed our enemy. So being annoyed, avoiding someone, something to that effect, uh, God is saying to us, I've called you to serve me in a particular way and you're not listening to me the first time, even if he's annoying, even if he rubs you a little bit wrong. And you might say to me now, but wait a minute, I'm a believer. I would never do that to Sal. I would never treat him in such a way. I would talk to him. I'd be kind. I'd have a cup of coffee with him and let him go on and on and on. And I would never kind of get a bad feeling in my heart or my mind. Well, Jonah is going to dig into you. The story, when you read Jonah, is going to dig into you with extraordinary hypocrisy and irony about a believer being called to preach repentance to his enemy and him absolutely refusing it over and over and over again. What Jonah is going to teach us as well is that we are all Jonah. At some level or another, we are all Jonah. And we all have a Nineveh. So we hear the call of God to serve, but we often don't serve God the first time we hear it. Now look at with me, Jonah 3, verses 5 to 10. Jonah three five to ten, starting with and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published, and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast. Herd nor flock taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let the man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, let every one churn from his evil way, and from the violence that's in his hand, who knows, God may churn and relent from relent and churn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how he churned from their evil way, God relented or repented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This particular passage teaches us that we need to be utterly dependent upon God in all things, but sometimes we don't do that the first time. The Ninevites heard the message, which they had heard before, this wasn't the first time they heard the idea of repent, and they became utterly, that passage describes to us, totally utterly dependent upon God. And here's where some of the irony and hypocrisy comes in because Jonah does exactly the opposite. So sometimes when we're supposed to be totally dependent upon God, we don't do that. So when you get this interview at a job and you're waiting for them to respond because you nailed it, you knocked it out of the park in the interview, and now you're waiting for this company to call you and and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and they're not calling... And then so you decide to go to the computer and you get frustrated and so you're just hitting refresh every five minutes waiting for the email to come in to say that you got the job. Then it grows. Your frustration grows. You begin not to be able to eat. You begin not to be able to sleep. The company's response is starting to overwhelm you. You realize, man, I'm way more qualified than that guy I was sitting next to. His disheveled tie. There's no way he could have nailed it like I nailed it. This interview went great for me. They must be hiring me, but your frustration grows. You express your frustration to your wife. Then you drag her into the vortex of your sin, and now she's complaining against the company because the company is not treating you fairly because they should at least be calling you if you're going to get the job or not going to get the job, and then we as Christians throw out the old, well, you know, even if I didn't get the job, the least they could do is just give me a call, right? Right? I mean, this is exactly how we would deal with a problem. And God is saying to us, look, I've asked you to be utterly, totally dependent upon me by faith. And that means when you're trying to get a job and they're not calling and you really need the job because you got to pay the bills or whatever. And God is saying to us, you need to be utterly dependent upon me when I tell you to be. But we often don't do that the first time, do we? I mean, we often miss the boat a little bit sometimes. So that's what makes us very similar to Jonah. Our frustration and our complaining, our dragging other people in the midst of our situation is not being obedient to God the first time. And this is exactly what Jonah does in this text. He hears the word of God calling him to serve God, and he runs exactly the opposite direction. And when we respond in a similar way with frustration and complaining, we are effectively doing the same thing, running in the opposite direction, not doing what God has called us to do the first time. The second time for Jonah, however, is an entirely different text. Look at Jonah, chapter 3, verse 1. Jonah is going to respond entirely different than he did in chapter 1. Almost exactly the same words are used as well. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Why is Jonah obedient to God's call the second time? Why are we obedient to God's call the second time? That's the question. What happened in Jonah that prompted him to do what he was supposed to do in chapter 1, verse 1? What happened to this man? Well, verses 1 and 2 talk about the God of second chances. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, it says in verse 1, and the narrative, the Old Testament narrative, that's what John we're talking about here, starts again almost starts identically to the verses in chapter one the word of the lord came to jonah the second time it came to jonah that's a really important verb to recognize and it's just like the one in the first first time it came to him and it came to him prophetically meaning that god was sharing his intentions and his intentions were going to happen this wasn't like a question he was asking jonah hey, I'm thinking about sharing the gospel with the Ninevites and I'm thinking about saving them. Would you consider helping me out here? No, he was saying, this is what's going to happen. The word of God came to Jonah prophetically and Jonah needed to understand that this was going to happen. Just like, the created, just like creation received the word of God and the created wor- order indeed happened. The sa- it's the same exact kind of thing. So the prophetic word came to Jonah, and the prophetic word, without question, was going to happen. But what stands different in this passage than in chapter 1, verse 1, is this little clause the second time. If God only used those that needed one chance to hear His word and respond, how many of us would actually be doing God's work? It would be pretty bleak, wouldn't it? There aren't, just aren't enough of us that respond that first time. We certainly do, but we certainly don't. So the grace of God is again revealed in this particular place in Scripture about God's forgiveness. So in chapter 1, the grace of God comes in many forms to the non-believer and the believer. So the storm engulfs the boat, you recall, and the sailors that are on the boat. It looks like sure destruction for everybody on board as they hurl things overboard and the last thing they hurl overboard like a javelin in the literal language is actually Jonah himself. And that calms the seas, but in the end, the point is that they both experience the forgiveness of God when they're on that boat. In mightily different ways, the sailors are saved, Jonah is saved, but Jonah's already a Christian. The sailors are polytheists or people that worship multiple gods, and they're actually brought to faith. And Jonah is actually saved, or like you and I, if you're a Christian, sanctified. Continually everlasting, saved over and over and over again through the forgiveness of God. So here in chapter 3, the grace of God is upon Jonah, and God provides a second chance for him. He could have easily just took his big finger and come down and just squashed him when he didn't listen the first time, but he didn't. He gave him a second chance and one guy I like reading, O. Palmer Robinson is, Robertson is his name, says, God forgives and never holds the thing against you. Think about how wonderful are the implications of that one fact for your life. God simply does not hold grudges against people who humble themselves and ask His forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Amen? How many times did the Israelites receive a second chance? Good grief, right? How many times with Abraham? Abraham received a second chance when he was called and he stopped short of the promised land in a a place called Haran. And he wouldn't have gone any further if God didn't go get him again. Moses received a second chance after he killed the uh, Egyptian slave. Peter was given a second chance when he denied the Lord three times. Clearly, this would resonate with you if you're a believer. We begin second chance, third chance, fourth chance, right? These biblical examples of receiving this second chance indicate to us that God forgives us again and again and again. And William Banks says this, We are moved to speak of Jonah's God as the God of second chance. But honest, sober reflection, he says, compels the saint to speak of him as the God of the 999th chance. Such gracious mercy was extended to Jonah here and to David and to the thief on the dying cross and to Peter. Surely it has been granted to all believers through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah is right. Verse 2, arise, God says, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God again gives Jonah his commission, the commission that he gave in chapter 1. And the beauty of these pa- this particular passages is, is that God never changes. We should take hope in God never changing. Because if he changed based on what we do, boy, we'd be in trouble. The fact that chapter 3 closely parallels chapter 1 shows us that God has not changed His mind about saving the lost. We again find God giving an imperative. Uh, Throughout Jonah, He uses uh, lots of imperatives, meaning commands. The word that starts that verse is arise. And He's not saying, hey man, if you get some time and and you're done with what you're doing, could you get up and go? He's saying, no, this is a command." get up man now get out of your seat and go he's saying while jonah throws the tantrum of all tantrums doesn't he and we can relate to that can't we we throw the tantrum of all tantrums but he is in redemptive history might be the tantrum god does not change the calling no matter how much jonah kicks and screams he is still supposed to go preach the message still supposed to go preach the gospel to the lost. And like Jonah trying to manipulate God, I could manipulate my mom like nobody's business. My mom was a divorced parent. I was the youngest in the family. Of course, the youngest always seems to supposedly get the worst of it, so you treat the youngest with all the gifts and ravish them with all sorts of things. And I knew how to manipulate this situation very well. So when I wanted something, I could say the right words, I could maneuver the right way. I'm out at Christmas with my nephews just recently, and just because I'm 43 now doesn't mean I don't know how to do this process still, and my mom still responds just like I, when I was seven. And my nephews are out there, and they're teenagers, and they try to do something, and I would chime in and tell my mom, that is a bad idea, you probably shouldn't do that for them. My mom would listen to me without question. And then I would do this behind my nephew's back, you know, and they would get really mad and, and, I, and I would maneuver my mom in such a way and my nephews would say, he's totally, totally manipulating you, Nana. That's what they call her. And, and my mom would say, oh no, Dan is a pastor in a church. <laughs> and that's when I would really do this one. God had a calling for Jonah and that call did not change no matter how much Jonah tried to manipulate God how much he kicked, how much he screamed, no matter how much language Jonah tried to use, the calling never changed. God never changed. Jonah had a choice to decline, but he chose to experience the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the compassion of God, rather than the justice that he had gone through for the last year. So he gets to this great city. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, that great city, the text says. Now, some discrepancy about what the great city is. Nineveh had a wall that surrounded it that was seven miles around the city to protect it. Some people believe just the, the sheer size of the city would make it great. But may I suggest a slightly different interpretation that many would agree with me on? Jonah goes to a city and preaches the gospel, and in one day, one day, not Actually, not even 24 hours, but we'll just give them 24 hours for the sake of it. 750,000 people come to faith in one day. I mean, you want to talk about a revival. That's a revival, <laughs> right? So I would agree that it probably has something to do with this idea of great being the size of the city because in the ancient Near East, 750,000 people was a lot of people to be in a city, but I think the better interpretation is, like you and like me, these were children of God, and these people were great to God. You, as a believer in Christ, are great to God. Now, let's look at it a little more objectively. I can sit up here, and if Jonah was standing next to you, he might say, I'm really glad these people were great to God, but you're not the one that had to walk down the middle of the street to all these murderers and share the gospel that they did not want to hear from his perspective. And so he believed that he was walking into a lion's den in light of having to share with these particular people. I mean, you can imagine, right? When you walked into Assyria, the, the, the country, Nineveh was in Assyria, When you walked into it, and you know, the border there, as we cross borders, we know when we're crossing borders all the time, they got big signs. Well, when you went into Assyria, they had a very clear sign that you were entering in, the superpower of that particular time. There was a gigantic gate that you'd walk through, and to the right of that gate, you had a stack of skulls that some estimate 100 feet high. So when you walk in, it was very similar to North Korea right now, if you watch the news at all. North Korea is flaunting their power, aren't they? Every time we see a video, you see all the missiles, you see all the soldiers, you see all of that uh, just fueling this fire that we're praying to God that nothing happens. But in a very similar sense, Assyria was the same way. You'd walk in this gate, you'd have a 100 feet of skulls for you to realize who's in charge obviously indicating to you, strongly implying that if you don't follow the rules, you're going to end up in the pile yourself. That was a problem for Jonah because he was scared to death now. Not only did the man have to get over his anger problem with these particular people, could you imagine walking through that gate and then having to walk right down the middle of the street and share this, but then... Obviously, watching the power of God save 100, I mean, it's just a fascinating story when you actually look at it through all this, watching 750,000 people come to faith. So Jonah was told by God that he would be given a message, it says in the text, the message that I will tell you. Nineveh's trouble is no longer the focal point as it was in chapter 1. Chapter 3, God is going to determine the message, essentially telling Jonah, you're on a tight leash, my friend. I've asked you to do it once, you failed to listen to me. I'm now asking you to do it again, and I will let you know what that message is, when I give you that message, and how I'd like you to share it. The sum of that message is found in chapter 4. We have the ability of hindsight here to look back, 4.11. The sum of that message that he preaches to the Ninevites is fairly simple, fairly straightforward, and God summarizes why God's doing it. Remember, the, the point of the whole book is that God's compassion motivates His grace. And this is what he says in 4.11. And should I not pity Nineveh, the lost, that great city in which there are 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and much cattle? God's essentially saying, there are lost people here. Now, 120,000, you might say, that's not 750. In this time, they would have only counted the men. They wouldn't have counted women and children. But the text clearly also tells us that the entire city came to faith. That means all women, all children, everybody. And so if you just broadly guess, 600, 750,000, really, what's the difference? It's a massive number of people that came to faith that time. So we're back to our question now. But why Jonah changed his mind in chapter 3 versus chapter 1? God forgives. God doesn't change. God's forgiveness doesn't change for us. So then what can we learn about Jonah's second go-around here? We've talked about why we don't respond the first time, but why does Jonah respond the second time? Excuse me. Why does Jonah kick and scream at God's call the first time and then go the second time? Why are we sometimes obedient to God's call the second time? Have the challenges in your life prompted you to run from God's call or run to God's call? Has God's way of disciplining, and that's exactly what Jonah gets for the first two chapters of this story, is disciplined by God so that God can get him to go where he wants. And that question for us is a good one. Has the God's way of disciplining you drawn you to God or has it frustrated you into complaining, kicking, screaming, trying to manipulate God? Here, Jonah was not frustrated. Jonah doesn't do a great job in this book. But there are a few snippets within that show Jonah's heart for God. Jonah in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, shows that he wasn't frustrated, he responded well, and God increased his awareness of God's forgiveness in his life. He is a God that offers us, offered Jonah a second chance. He does not change in that. You can be assured that when you make a mistake, that God will forgive the repentant heart. But what should that forgiveness do to us? Why are we sometimes obedient to God's call the second time? And the answer, Jonah teaches us, that God's forgiveness should fuel our zeal to serve God. God's increased Jonah's awareness of his own forgiveness because Jonah finally understood that God's forgiveness should fuel my zeal to serve God, regardless of how easy it is with Sal at the coffee maker or how difficult it is when I've got to go preach repentance to 750,000 murderers. Oftentimes, God allows things to happen in our lives so we can learn about God's grace. But it's how we respond in the midst of those situations it's how we respond that differentiates the immature b- believer between and the mature believer. The mature believer recognizes and puts their faith and hope in God right when the situation and problem starts. Hindsight, in this case, should not be, I get to the end of my problem, I've kicked and screamed and complained through it, and then I look back and realize, oh, look at what God's done here and look what God's done here and look what God's No, hindsight for us as mature believers should be looking back to see, remember that problem I had six months ago and, and God forgave me through that process and God grew me through that process and God delivered me through that process. That's the hindsight we should be looking back at. We should be looking back at our trials, realizing God has not departed us. God has forgiven us. God's given us a second chance. He will do it in this time, and this time, and this time. Or, as I said earlier, is the way God's disciplining you, frustrating you so much that it's pushing you away from God. And it's sure easy to do. So Jonah arises in verse 3 of chapter 3. Jonah arose and went, two really great verbs, to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord. The term arose, or the verb arose, means that Jonah stood at attention like a soldier. When you're in the military, a general walks by or somebody that's in a superior rank walks by, a soldier stands at attention and salutes that person because they are the superior rank. And this is exactly what Jonah did in that term. He stood at attention and was ready to receive what God was calling him to do. The second verb, went, is a much richer verb. Used 1,500 times in the Old Testament. I didn't count all those this week. It describes men and women living out their days in obedience or disobedience to the Bible. So, David says in Psalm 23:4, that he went through the valley of the shadow of death. That is, though his life has continual threats, he went through it with no fear because God was with him. He can fear no evil because he went the path of God who knew his path and delivered him. That's tough to do. Isaiah says a very similar thing with a little different question involved. Isaiah urges believers to trust in God as they went through despairing times in Isaiah 50.10. Isaiah says the same thing as Jonah. Fearing and obeying God is to live life as God intended because the Christian that went the way of God enjoys a good end for God's people. In other words, went is referring to this obedience and disobedience. We see God testing the Israelites in a similar way to see if they went according to the law, it says in Exodus 16.4. So there's an expectation that the believer it's not going to sound right but the expectation of a believer would went according to the covenant that's what we're supposed to do so the beauty of these verbs indicate that jonah was prepared he was prepared to arise and go jonah stood at attention when god's calling came to him and secondly he went meaning that jonah stood and went according to the word of god the text says How is it, though, that Jonah could receive this calling and do it when he so radically rebelled a year prior? Why did Jonah become obedient to God's call the second time? And we see why in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 2 of Jonah. Hopefully, if you've moved out of the Bible, you kept your finger where it was. Jonah 2 2. Jonah saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol or hell I cried, and you, God, heard my voice. Look at verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah could arrive in Nineveh and declare, Look at me, people! Look at me! I'm a man who's been forgiven. I've been restored. So for even those that disobey and run from God, he will do these things. He will forgive you, Nineveh. You see, Nineveh would have known this story. Like you and I know how famous the story of Jonah being in a whale for three days is, they certainly would have known that as well at that particular time. This was a famous story at this time in history. And so Richard Phillips, another guy I love to read, notes, this is one of the reasons God allows us to slide back into sin. Does our recognition of the one who saves us help us understand his amazing grace and forgiveness? It is those that encounter God's amazing forgiveness that are most useful for the spread of the gospel. And just like we sang, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was once lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Let me summarize Isaiah 6 for you so you don't turn there and try to read while I'm summarizing. Put it in your notes as Isaiah 6, 5 to 13 and read it when you get home and I'll summarize it for you. Isaiah understands God's forgiveness fueling his zeal to serve God. Because those two points are made so clear in this passage that you just can't help but miss it. Or you can't help but not miss it, I should say. The inward look that Isaiah gives in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 6. Isaiah confessed his sins and he mentions especially his unclean lips. Now this is a believer speaking. This isn't this is another prophet speaking. We're talking about some really serious Christians here. And he notes his unclean lips. And the prophet knew that he could not faithfully preach the word of God unless his heart, his unclean heart had been cleansed and forgiven. And God met the prophet's needs. He sends an angel He uses a a piece of coal from the altar and cleanses him and forgives him. And true worship, true worship should lead us to witness and service. And that's what Jonah experiences. Understanding our forgiveness leads us to worship, which leads us to serve God with a great zeal. And after being cleansed in verses 8 to 13 of Isaiah 6, Jonah, or Isaiah saw the need and that was to feed the lost with the word of God. Everything to this point, just like Jonah, was to pers- prepare Isaiah for this time. The prophet was no longer wrapped up in his own needs. He wanted to do the will of God. He was no longer burdened by his sin. He had been cleansed. He was no longer discouraged by this burden. he had in his heart that he knew that needed to get rid of he was ready to go to work in these passages he was a forgiven man so this isn't just applicable to a non-believer we are i am speaking to you brothers and sisters in christ that our zeal should be motivated by the forgiveness of god because we are forgiven over and over and over again and when isaiah walked out of the temple that day he was no longer mourning. He was forgiven, cleansed, and ready for his mission. He was a man that was forgiven, and that forgiveness fueled his zeal to serve God. When Jonah was vomited, as the text says, out of the belly of the fish, he was forgiven and ready for his mission. He was a man that was forgiven, and that forgiveness fueled his zeal to serve God, even in the most unbelievable circumstance. He was not merely a spectator. He responded. He participated. He got up. Arise, he says. Jonah still had the option to sit. Just because God yelled at him didn't mean he had to get up. He clearly yelled at him the first time and he didn't get up. He could have chosen to do the same thing the second time. But he did. He got up. We need to respond as participants here. When I got saved, within days or weeks, I don't recall, I was down at the Huntington Beach Pier Street evangelizing every Friday night, I knew nothing about God. I didn't know where the book of Genesis was. I didn't know Matthew. I didn't know what God's forgiveness was. I certainly wouldn't have understood the idea that His forgiveness should be motivating me or firing my zeal to go serve God. I didn't know anything, nothing. So I'd go down to the pier, I'd share my faith that I've been forgiven look at me look at me i said i've been forgiven i'm wretched horrible person i've been forgiven you need this and they would say what's this i don't know but you need it i knew you need this you need jesus and that's all i knew how to say i didn't know anything else but to say that and then somebody would say well, what about the inerrancy of scripture inerrancy what the what is inerrancy i have no idea what inerrancy infallibility i have no idea what infallibility is how does the trinity work i have no clue man you need forgiveness that's what you need and i'd go and i'd walk away with my shoulders slouched get in my car go home pick up these books try to understand what inerrancy was, try to understand what infallibility was, try to understand the complexity of how the Trinity works, three persons in one, and I'd come back and I'd have some answers hoping somebody, anybody at the pier would say, hey, what about inerrancy? Then I'd have the answer, but then they'd ask me seven other questions that I knew nothing about again. So then I'd have to go back and start the whole process again. The point is that I was forgiven. I was forgiven. God's forgiveness fueled my zeal to serve Him. And sometimes that's all it needs. You don't need to have some, you don't need to have the academic degrees. I mean, look, I'm an academic and I love academia uh, academia, but you don't need that to say, I've been forgiven, look at me. It doesn't take much. So back to Jonah, chapter three, verse ten. So since those times at the pier, I've had a bit of time of study and I've got to experience the beauty of this particular passage. There's one word in this passage that you, can, you must understand when we are talking about the forgiveness of God. If it's going to motivate you, if it's going to fire up your zeal to serve Him, it's right here. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, meaning the Ninevites repenting, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Now I use the word repented. Many of your translations probably have the word relented. Those are synonymous. They are one in the same. But what's the problem when I start using the word repented? We don't usually use the word repented when we're talking about God, do we? That's not usually a term. That's usually a term we affix to ourselves because we're the sinners and we're the ones that need to repent. Not God. He's holy, right, perfect, justice, just, and all of those things. Listen to this definition of repent. You want to talk about the forgiveness of God, fueling your zeal to serve Him. God does not repent like you and I. He does not repent like John 1.9 encourages us to repent of our sin. God did not repent in this particular passage of any sin. God literally suffers in repenting from judging our sins. He suffered at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus takes upon Himself the evil which was man's sin. He suffers the very suffering which in His justice He should have laid upon us. God causes the judgment to fall upon Himself. This is the meaning when the text talks about God's repenting, because it's not the only place in Scripture that this is talked about. God has taken upon that which He is not guilty for, our sin. God repenting is God being moved to pity, as we found earlier in chapter 4. God being moved to pity on those that He intends to save by taking the sins of those people on Himself. This is how I was forgiven. I intuitively felt this wonderful blessing of God those nights at the pier. I was fueled by this forgiveness. Many of you can resonate with this experience. If you've come to faith in Christ, you can certainly resonate with my experience probably to the nausea of some people around you because you are sharing the gospel and Jesus with them so much they just are tired of hearing you talk about Jesus all the time. But for you, forgiveness has. You've probably experienced the fueling of your zeal to serve God in some capacity. But we as older believers, even younger believers, can sometimes become somewhat immune to this wonderful repentance of God. We can sometimes miss this unbelievable truth that should be fueling our zeal to serve God because we've been Christians for a long time and we sometimes forget about that. But this truth is such a wonderful truth to bring us right back to my days at the pier. I'm bringing you right back to that day you were saved and your zeal was just... Nobody could stop you. You were just on fire, as they say. Do you remember this time? Do you, brothers and sisters, remember this time when your zeal was just fervent and you couldn't stop it? Do you remember those days where nothing could stop you from serving God? Are you experiencing that same fuel today? I know many of you. I watch you serve. I know the answer to that is yes. It's not that we're not doing anything. This is an encouragement to go back to those days when you recognized, look at me. I'm forgiven. This is unbelievable. You've experienced God's forgiveness and been fueled to serve Him in a myriad of ways. You couldn't wait to share your faith. You couldn't wait to change the things in your life so they aligned with the Word of God. You couldn't wait to be dependent upon God in all you do. You couldn't wait. You couldn't wait. You couldn't wait. And the list just keeps going. Jonah is teaching us today that God's forgiveness should fuel our zeal to serve Him. In your time of meditation, in your time of Scripture reading, in your time of service, I was driving to the church this morning. I've taught this message in 180, a much briefer version, last night, Saturday night, first service, and I'm driving this morning to the church, and I'm like, man is God's forgiveness fueling my zeal to serve Him this morning with what God... And darn it, you guys, i know. It was slight. And I was so sad that I'm turning left coming up the hill here, and I'm like, is God's forgiveness fueling my zeal to serve these people, to serve God with the, with the Word of God? And I can tell you, not at the level I wanted it to. I want to be Jonah in this case. A lot of times I didn't want to be him, but in this case, I want to be Jonah. I want to be the guy that says God taps on the shoulder and I'll walk into any fire you ask me to do, God, with a great zeal. So as you guys are spending this week thinking about this truth, contemplate, is God's forgiveness fueling? Is it fueling that zeal for you to serve God? Amen? Let's pray. God, we started off this... Service by worshiping You with song and praise and prayer. And God, You are our God. You are our God. You never change in that. We get second, third, 990 chances, God. You are our God, and we are grateful for that. Thank You. Thank You for being our God. Thank You for saving us as You saved the Ninevites. Thank you for your continued salvation in our life like Jonah. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters today. I pray for me today, God, that I would never lose sight of your forgiveness. God, you repented. You took upon yourself, God, what you did not deserve, but you did it for us. God, may the forgiveness that you've given us fuel our zeal to serve you, God, in the multiple ways, God, that you've called us to. May we not become just immune or just kind of something just negative about that, God, but that we may have a zeal because you love us, and God, we want to return that love in just a mighty way. So help us, God, empower us. May the Spirit of God move within us and and shape us and convict us and hone us, God, right where we need to be so that we can be the people that serve you with a zeal because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.